I have several questions, and if we, if we run out, then uh, I'll ask for questions from you all. But I think we may, have, we may actually have enough to, to cover the, the time period here. So these will be questions about the sovereignty of God. But let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, as we come to you, we just rejoice in having the comfort and knowledge that you are sovereign. For Father, where would we be without this kind of assurance? Lord, we lift up to you this time together as we discuss these things, have a good time together talking about you and your character and your nature, and Father, the things that you do to provide for us. Uh, we pray that we will benefit greatly uh, because you are not only a sovereign God, but you are a beneficent God desiring to give good gifts to your children. Lord, we pray for Rick as these questions uh, sometimes can, can be uh, interesting. And we, uh, we pray that we would enjoy our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So these questions are on the sovereignty of God, and I have several that I wanted to ask. But uh, the first one is, how does the sovereignty of God work through choices and causes? Thank you. That's one of the big issues in theology when it comes to uh, the, the person of God. And uh, there's a long strand of tendencies among theologians because of this concern to either deny or to radically downplay the sovereignty of God, kind of the standard uh, Arminian attack on the sovereignty of God is, uh, if God is sovereign, then he's to blame for all the bad things in the world, uh, which is actually not a very sophisticated position. Um, you know, I, In all these matters, let me say right now, we need to follow Calvin's dictum, uh, where God makes an end of teaching, let us make an end of learning. We are thinking God's thoughts after him. And we are walking on the handrails of the Holy Scripture. And if a friend of mine, Carl Robbins, I heard him say recently, uh, by reading your Bible, you become a Calvinist. But to become an Arminian, you need to go to church. <laughs> you need to hear, actually, the, the, the philosophical problems are with those who deny the sovereignty of God, because they're taking presuppositions from like the enlightenment, enlightenment, free will, and whatnot. So the way to approach this is how the Bible approaches it. The Bible teaches very clearly that God is sovereign over all things. Nothing happens apart from his will. Everything that happens is decreed eternally by the Father. And so you go, well, what about evil? Evil is decreed by God the Father because everything is decreed by the sovereign God, and so it must be. Um, well, then how do you account for the goodness of God uh, if there's evil and if he willed all things and that all thing includes evil? Well, God did ordain secondary causation. And I actually don't like to use the term free will because the term free will uh, is loaded with enlightenment presuppositions that even the reformers, uh, when they use free will, they're not thinking the way that a Thomas Paine is thinking. You know, free, when we think of free will, it's that I, it's, we, we think of autonomous self-determination. Well, the Bible does not teach autonomous self-determination. But God did create moral agents. We believe in 100% divine sovereignty and 100% human uh, responsibility. And God ordained that, there, that, he would, that he would be glorified 
by evil committed by wicked men so that he would be glorified in his power, justice, and wrath. When we speak of God glorifying himself, what we mean is that God glorifies himself by the display of his attributes. And so he glorifies his love by loving. He glorifies his mercy by showing mercy. He glorifies his steadfast faithfulness through patience. He glorifies his wrath through the judgment of the wicked. And I know that we, in our humanism, we only like certain of God's attributes to be glorified. But God is not a humanist. God is a theist. And God is ordained that all of his attributes would be glorified. And by the way, the best and highest good is the glory of God in all his attributes. It is good that there is evil so that the sovereign God may be glorified in his justice. Um, Donald Gray Barnhouse uh, used an illustration of a, of a, a, a company in France that made the, the finest lace in the world. And in order to display that, that lace, they would they had a black, back in their store window in Paris, they had a black velvet background. And it was only against the black velvet background of, of, of that background that you could see the lace. And you could just see how intricate it was. And I think Barnhouse is helpful when he says, it is only God desires to relate to us by grace. And he desires to be glorified in his grace. And that presupposes evil, guilt, and so forth. So the reason why God decreed the decree of sin and reprobation and evil is for the praise of his glory. The glory of his wrath, but also the glory of his grace. And this is a language you'll get um, in, uh, at the end of Romans 9. Where Paul says, "Well, what if God did? What if He ordained the reprobate, uh, so that those who are saved by grace will uh, will will be able to know His glory, and be able to see His His mercy?" That's the Bible's teaching. I, I think it's absolutely chilling how the prophecy of Isaiah ends. Isaiah ends Isaiah sixty six with the redeemed in heaven looking out from the porch of heaven, as it were, over the smoke coming up from hell and giving glory to God for it. Now, you may say, you know, I have a hard time doing that. Well, that's because you're not in your glorified state yet, <laughs> and neither am I. And I'm kind of like, whoa, that's pretty radical. But in my glorified state, I'll be one of those, looking from the balcony of heaven, giving praise to God for what is revealed about him, among other things, because of his wrath on sin. So you're going, well, this is radical God-centeredness. Yeah, but the Bible is. And so the question of how is it that a good God decreed evil, the answer is for his glory. Uh, God believes in the fir first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The chief end of God is to glorify himself and enjoy himself forever. And you go, isn't that selfishness? Not when you are God. See, the problem with our selfishness is that we are not God, and we're, 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 we're treating ourselves as something we're not, but God is God. Now, the Bible says very clearly that God is not the author of evil. First uh, John 1, 5, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. The Bible plainly, James says explicitly, God is not the author of evil. 
And so how did he decree something of which he is not the author? And the answer is by, by secondary causation. He decreed, but it is you and me who commit evil. It is sinners who sin. God, And so I, I, it's very helpful to me. God sinlessly employs sin for the praise of his glory and to commune with his people by means of grace. Um, and so the Bible says God decrees all things, even two sparrows falling on the ground. Everything is decreed by God. But God is good. In him there's no darkness at all. He's not the author of evil. And so those statements, from those statements, we build up our theology of these things. And for a lot of Christians, they just can't handle that. Uh, and, and I think the reason is they've got a lot of enlightenment, philosophical thinking. And, you know, I, I was a brand new convert. I was converted the previous Sunday night. When I went to church for the first time as a Christian, knowing I was a Christian, I knew I'd been born again. And I had a brand new Bible, big one in a big case with a handle on it. And uh, I could beat the wicked on the way to the, across the city. And Boyce was preaching Romans in the morning, and it was Romans 9 at the end on reprobation. And I thought the man had lost his cotton-picking mind. But he kept saying, look at the text, look at the text. And uh, that's what the Bible says. Well, you're, you're kind of getting into the evil question here, so. Well, you, you kind of have to. Yeah, that's right. How about this one? Would you, uh, would you provide a summary of determinism? as it relates to Calvinism versus Arminianism? Well, determinism is, and I'm, I'm not a technical expert on this, but my experience with determinism does not mean what the Bible means. Because what it means is that if you believe in the predestination, and I'm going to preach on predestination tonight, if you believe in uh, God chose all things, it's all according to his will, then I'm, I'm, my volition is taken out of the equation. So I'm automatically destined one way or the other. The Bible does not teach determination. The Bible teaches. Now you go, how is it that God is 100% sovereign and man is 100% volitionally involved and responsible? The answer is that I don't know. Uh, Neither I nor anybody else has an answer to that question. Um, But the Bible does teach them both. And I think a lot of our Arminian friends, they assume that because we believe in absolute sovereignty, that we don't believe in human volition, and therefore we believe in determinism. We do not believe in determinism. One of the addresses I thought about, if if I was here doing more addresses, I was going to do an address on sovereignty and prayer. And uh, it's a hugely interesting subject. Um, And one of the things I'd like to say is that prayer does not change God, but prayer changes things. God cannot be changed. If I was able of changing God, then I would be to that extent God. God is not changed. Nothing could change. He's outside of his creation. The creation has no ability to change him. However, prayer does change things. And my prayers matter. Why do my prayers matter? According to the will of God. So I use the example of, let's say your neighbor Bob is ordained by God to be saved on May 2nd in answer to your prayer on May 1st. And your prayer is the divinely ordained, God ordains both the ends and the means. That's the thing. And God ordained that your prayer on May 1st will be answered by God with Bob's conversion on May 2nd. 
Is it necessary for you to pray? Yes. He will not be saved unless you pray. What is the percent chance that you're going to pray for him? 100%. Because of God has decreed it. Now, we don't usually have access to that information. We don't, in general, see the decree of God. We hear what the Bible says about it, and then we see what happens. And so we say, well, Bob was saved because Steve prayed for him on Monday. And, or, or the sermon was preached, uh, or the, the whatever. Uh, and, and we actually do that. We're fully invested. We're fully involved. We will to do these things. And we, we are able to will them or not to will them. And yet in the decree of God, his decree will stand. Maybe the clearest thing you would get is, is in Peter's prayer, uh, his sermon on Pentecost, where he says, you with the help of wicked men did what God preordained. So God preordained the atoning death of Christ. He, he, he fixed it. Not only what and when, but how. And then Peter said, he says that. But you, with the help of wicked men, crucified him. And so the Bible gives us this perspective that is not determinism. Now, I'm also sensitive because I'm a Boston Red Sox fan. And for whatever reason, because Boston's associated with the Puritans and because they neither understand nor like the Puritans in the Boston sports media, they always use this expression, oh, because we're from Boston, we suffered dark determinism. The Sox must always lose. The Sox must not always lose, although they're losing right now. But I, it just gets this whole dark determinism. Uh, no, we don't believe in that. And, and what that means is, on one side of the equation, and in a very real way, you and I are moral agents. You and I make decisions. We make choices. They are real choices. We can make other ones. And we're at, so our life is, we're not puppets. Uh, I remember Sinclair Ferguson in my Westminster classroom said, uh, you know, you, you, you really want to go for the gust so you go to the life of Jesus. His life was not only predestined, it was in large measure pre-recorded. Are we going to call him a puppet? The last thing you get from Jesus in the Gospels is that he's just, just determinism. He's just flotsam and the river's blowing it, taking him downstream. No, Jesus is the, he's acting sovereignly. His mastery of the whole situation, and he is willing. You think of his struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane. Clearly, you know, not my, not, not, not my will, but your will, Father, be done. Jesus is not a puppet, and yet his life is not only preordained in the details, as Peter says in Acts 2, it's even largely pre-recorded. And so neither is Jesus a puppet, nor are you, nor anybody else. We do not believe in determinism. And our, I think our Arminian friends, but theological opponents, they just don't get that. They, don't, they think that if God is sovereign, then that means we, we, we're, we really nullify human responsibility. Clearly the Bible doesn't do that. And so the classic Arminian verse is Joshua 24, 15. Choose now this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And they go, see, Calvinism's wrong. And I go, but Calvinists love that verse as much as you do. We don't deny any of that. But what are you going to do with all these other statements? Well, we don't preach that is the answer. You know, we stop at Romans 8. We never preach. My wife grew up in a dear, sweet, holiness movement, Nazarene church, Wesleyan theology. Never heard a sermon from Ephesians 1 her entire life. And the answer was always, it's too complicated. 
Well, the Holy Spirit thinks we should know it. That was Calvin's argument. We need to learn what the scripture says, and there's no part of the scriptures that's a threat to us. So, uh, yeah. So, so kind of following up with that, then would you say prayer fits into those works that God prepared in advance for us to do? Certainly. Um, by the way, we need to pray more. I really think historians, should the Lord tarry, will look back on these years, like the five or ten year window that we're right in right now. It's just the utter moral and societal collapse of a culture. And they're going to marvel that the evangelical Christians were not praying. Can't get people to come to a prayer meeting. We, we, we do. But most churches don't even have prayer meetings. Most evangelical churches don't even have a, prayer, a congregational prayer in the service. Uh, and we're, we're so caught up in our, you know, in Little League and, and Downton Abbey, you know, and or as, of the, as of last week, Netflix's Drive to Survive Season 5. I've already binge-watched it with my daughters on Formula One racing. Uh, that we don't have time to pray. We need to pray. You, we have not because we ask not. And so, uh, yeah, prayer is a kind of a, a, a particularly sharp lens on that. But the Bible commands us in prayer. Paul, who taught on, you know, divine sovereignty so much, he not only spent, I mean, Paul, there's, no one has a higher density of prayer in his letters as Paul. And I love Paul. He, he, he preaches and he prays. He, he preaches and he, oh, by the way, in light of what I just taught you, Ephesians 1, now let me pray that God will apply that to you. And then in, at the end of Ephesians, oh, please pray for me that God would open a door for me and that I wouldn't chicken out. That's essentially what he's saying. That I would be bold. There's the Apostle Paul praying for boldness. So he has a clear understanding of radical divine sovereignty, 100%, and then also 100% volitional will. So here's a different one. Um, should we expect God to exercise his sovereignty in ways that we always understand or in ways that unbelievers could understand? No. See, it's just, it's, I, you, you're not raising teenagers well here. <laughs> then my daughters would say, there'd be no, there'd be no follow-up. How's school? Good. Yeah, can't, okay. can't ask a question like that. I have teenagers. Tell me how school was. That's the question you got to ask. So let me elaborate. Um, no, plainly, God, uh, I mean, we were just talking, Steve and I, about a, a young man in my church. He was our, our youth minister, but he was a little older. He was 44. He'd come to the ministry a little later wonderful youth pastor, and a super gifted preacher. And at age 44, he suffered a devastating stroke, and Steve was asking me how he's doing. And, uh, and there's some good news. But, but the truth is, the whole thing is absolutely devastating. And when you're meeting with him, it, it's not sufficient just to say Romans 8.28. Well, we know that God works all things for the good of those who love him. Have a nice day. I'll go back to my life. It's true, by the way, and we do rejoice in that. But I, I've sat down with him and said, you know, Jeff, I don't know what God's will is in this. But we know by conviction, by the teaching, that his, by the teaching of Scripture that his will is good. And I said, let's you and me find out together. Let's discover. In heaven, we will understand. In heaven, we will look back and we will see the whole tapestry 
and we will say he has done everything well. And we will look at the most crushing experiences of our own life, and we will give God praise for them. Often in life, we are able to do that. I look back now, and I see that that divorce forced me to turn to the Lord. I look back, and I see that that, that medical crisis I went through taught me, you know, not to be self-reliant, taught me that God answers prayer. We, we, we say that now. And so it, there are times when, when things that are perplexing, and usually they involve our suffering. We want our suffering to be validated by an immediate benefit of it. And it's hard for us when there's not an obvious, you know, it's, you love it when, and this it happens, and we do love it, when a youth dies in a car wreck, and during the funeral, his brother comes to saving faith in Jesus, right? Um, and I've been there for some of those. Um, and you're like, okay, and it, kind of, it kind of justifies the suffering. Okay, it, it, we were okay with the suffering to a certain extent because we see the good. But there are times when we do not see the good. You know, I've dealt with some suicides of young people. It's pretty brutal. And you're going to do your best. I don't permit myself as a minister to give false comfort. I try not to afflict needless harm. But I, I don't have the right to say something that will give short-term comfort, but that is really not biblical or true. And there are times when you just have to cast yourself upon the Lord. But we do trust the Lord, knowing that um, because he is sovereign and because he is good, that we will know the reasons. I, I was very close to James Montgomery Boyce when in the spring of 2000 he got uh, bile duct cancer. And uh, uh, he'd been feeling really badly earlier in the year. He had been traveling a lot. And, and he, he, he said to me, we would, we would work on books in our rooms. We'd go preach and we'd have our meals together. That was where... We're two exciting guys, you know. And, uh, and he comes to me at one meal and goes, i got a dirty little secret. I've been sleeping, not working on my books. I was like, first shame. He goes, I don't know what's wrong with me. So actually we got to, we went, got, he, he had a blood test, and I had breakfast with him that morning. We prayed because uh, he was really not doing well. And the blood test came back negative. I've never, he was shot through with cancer at that time. I don't know how it all came back negative, but it did. And then uh, my youngest son, who's in, getting a PhD right now, was born and he with he got the medical results he didn't tell me until after my son was born i think he didn't want me to emotionally name my child after him which i absolutely would have done and so the next day i got a call to come down to his office and he very casually tells me he's got this i think livers bile duct uh, and they give me very little time it's going to advance dramatically and I, I will be gone within a few weeks i said well are you going to do chemo? He goes, if they want me to, I'll, you know, I will. And I said, well, let's give it the old, I said, I said well, let's give it the old college try, Jim. And he goes, I'll, I'll do it. And he, uh, I mean, he was, went downhill. So we actually had our big theology conference, and he didn't want everybody to know. Didn't want it to be about him. And he was, in, he was yellow by then. And, uh, and I was covering for him in massive ways. And people were like, why are you covering so much for Dr. Boyce? Well, he's not feeling well. But, he was so bad that at the end of the conference, he, he was done. He couldn't do anything. So Phil Riken, our other minister, <coughs> called him and said, you know, it would be nice if you could come to the church. And at least, because we, we sent an email to the church on Tuesday. 
oh, by the way, James Montgomery Boyce, your pastor for the last 32 years, has got cancer. He will soon die, and you will not see him again. That was not very easy on our church. So Phil said, could you come and at least do the call to worship? And I'll never forget that day. Because he says, and it doesn't, the Alliance of Confessing Evangelical has a recording of it. He said, uh, you know, everybody is saying, to me, he gives a di- here's my diagnosis. And his speech was a little slow. It would later become slurred, but it wasn't slurred yet. And he says, you yeah, know, here's my diagnosis. He said, you can pray for me. He said, people say, you know, well, we want to pray for your life. And he said, yes, pl- feel free. But it occurs to me that the reason God gave me bowel duct cancer was to kill me. <laughs> and that's, I think that's what's going to happen, but knock yourself out. And then he says, now, all, my, all these years I've been preaching the sovereignty of God. And you're wondering, what do I think now? He says, well, of course God is sovereign over it. He says, but what strikes me most is that he's good. And in ways that I do not know, this is for my good. And in ways that you do not know, it's for your good. It's for the good of this church that I would now die. And that just had a humongous effect on me. Because it's true, we have to trust that God's purposes are good. Why do we trust they're good? Because the Bible tells us so. And we also have walked with him. And so we don't know. In so many cases, we don't know. And we have to deal with not knowing. But we know that he is good. And so Genesis 50, 20, what you men meant for evil, God meant for good. And we hold to that. There are times in darkness where we, all we have is to hold on to that truth. Um, and we trust and know that in glory we will look back and say, he has done everything well. It couldn't have been done better. So how does the doctrine of God's sovereignty affect the way believers should interact with the world and living with God as our sovereign? Well, they're not chosen, so we should shun them and and despise them utterly. (laughs) No, no, no. Uh, uh, Another dress I would give if I had a, probably the third dress if I was doing the third one, makes the point that um, the belief that because God is sovereign, if we believe God is sovereign, we won't evangelize, makes no sense at all. Uh, the reason we evangelize is because we know that God is sovereign. Uh, if we understand, it, by the way, the real controversy in Calvinism is on total depravity. That's where the actual controversy lies. And it, it's the biblical view of man in sin, that we are dead in trespasses, that the, the man outside of Christ is not able, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the, uh, the man of, apart from the Spirit does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, and you go, well, I knew they don't, for he is not able. That's the problem. And so much of Arminianism is is a rejection of that and then a system around that rejection. Um, But it's true. So I look at the unconverted world, the world around me, and I know that they cannot believe They cannot respond to my witness that my preaching is absolutely in vain, 100% in vain, unless God should sovereignly give his power to it. Ezekiel 37. I love Ezekiel 37. I love Ezekiel as a whole. And Ezekiel, you'd say, name the prophet you least would like to be. It's Ezekiel. Numero uno. Give me, yes, Jeremiah ahead of him. You know, poor Ezekiel. At one point God says, look, you're going to, symbolize the siege of Jerusalem. So you're going to lay on one side for 270 days, nine months. 
and you're going to cook your food with dung. And Ezekiel goes, this is my paraphrase, not dung. No, I ain't doing that. And the Lord's like, okay, we'll pretend it's dung. <laughs> I'm going to cut you a little slack. And he lays there for 270 days. But then finally he graduates from the school of the prophets, and he gets his first pastorate, the first Presbyterian church of the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37. And I, li I like to say, you think your church is dead. His was decomposed. And uh, it's a, literally a valley of strewn, whitewashed bones. And the Lord says, prophesy, son of man. Well, actually, actually, he says to Ezekiel, uh, what are you going to do, son of man? Ezekiel, he's like, stop trying. Lord, you know. Which is like, just tell me, all right? Prophesy, son of man. And he preaches and nothing happens. But then a wind blows. The Holy Spirit comes. And when the preaching goes forth, and the Holy Spirit attends to that preaching, the bones start moving, sinews form on it. They stand up a mighty army in the Lord. That's what we believe about the world. And I, we believe what Paul, what God, what Jesus said to Paul in Corinth. You know, Paul did not like Corinth. You get that picture? He didn't like Corinth. It's just like a low, morally dirty city, and, he's, and his ministry is not booming there. And so it's so bad in, for, in Acts 19 that Jesus appears to him in a vision and says, do not give up for I have many people in this place. And how often we think about that. So we see a group and I don't, there's no, there's no clothing, there's no dot on the forehead saying there's the elect. We don't believe, we don't, we preach to sinners, but we know that Jesus has many people in this place. And then when God saves them, he, he will cause the spirit to attend to, the, to either, in my case, the preaching, in our case, the witnessing, whatever, the email that we sent explaining the, you know, the cross of Jesus to them, that God actually saves people. The other thing is we have compassion on the world. Now, it's their own fault. We know that. They're volitionally engaged and responsible. Who, who hardened Pharaoh's heart, God or Pharaoh? Yes. The, uh, but but we, have, we should have compassion on them. And you look at America today. What you're looking at in America today is a society that between 1900 and 1920 rejected the Bible. And it was rejected in the church. And all you're looking at is the multi-generational downstream effects. And we're just now five or six generations. And now, you know, it's dogs dating cats. It's, you know, the, 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 the next big thing is pedophilia. It actually is. And you're like, no, no, it is. And they're actually supporting you. It's like, how do we get? Well, it's just man in rebellion to God with his sin just digging deeper and deeper. And while it's, it's painful to see, and while we oppose it, I think we do have, to, for instance, to fight the culture war because we're Americans, and I'm a South Carolinian, I'm a Greenvillian, I have a civic duty, so we have to fight them as well. But we never forget that we would be, we, not only would I be, I was them in, in, a, in certain ways. You know, I was actually a conservative as a non-Christian, but it was other idolatries. And we should have compassion on the lost. And, and we should have a burning desire that they should be, that the word of God should go to them. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And here's the thing, God actually saves them. I mean, I'm an example of it. I'm a 30-year-old, proud, 
power broking, you know, uh, military officer on his way to glory and power and doing very well actually. And pretty happy about it for the most part too. And my mom, God uses my, it's this combination of things. My mom nagging me to go to church. She was not a believer, but son, literally her phone call was, dear, when you're a general, you'll be expected to be religious. So why don't you go reconnect with your, it's, a, it's when you're a general was the rationale for everything, my family. And then there's a young lady I met in passing who recommended a church to me. And in all these sovereign ways, God had mercy on my soul. And he saved me by the word. Now, that required a church to have people who tithe. That required deacons who greeted people at the door. It required a man set apart for the preaching of the word. The whole package, and it was there. And that's what, we do it to glorify God, but he, we glorify him by obeying his command that we would do the Great Commission. So we should have a great compassion. Um, Sharon and I in Philadelphia, 25 years ago, lived next to two lesbians. And they were human beings. I think one of the things going on today, because we're so dominated by the election cycles and by the, great, by, the, uh, by the culture war, which I think we have to fight, but we look upon our neighbor as our culture war enemy and no longer as our neighbor. And they may be your culture war enemy, but they're also the lost who are to be found. And they're to be sought, and we're to be praying, we're to love, love, your, love those who hate you and despitefully use you. And I think one of the things happening today is our preoccupation with the political thing, which is not going well. Is that going well, John? It is not going well. I'm starting to suspect that there's something fundamentally wrong with this world. The, uh, and God's agenda is not America. You know, you know what St. Augustine said when they brought him news that Rome had been sacked in 410, Augustine said, and he's a Roman, I mean, he is a, North Africa was like the rich suburbs of Rome, frankly. And he said, Rome was evil. You know, and, and I don't despise America, although I'm getting a little tired of all this, but it will glorify, it would, it would, it would, it would, it would disgrace God if he didn't judge America. <laughs> So he's going to judge America. But we're to have compassion on the lost. And we're to remember that that's who we were. And God had mercy on us. And we're to love them. I had, when I was in South Florida, we had a man across the street. He was a Jewish man, Art. And I didn't really interact with him a lot. But I knew, I lived there five years and I knew him. And uh, one day we're out getting the mail together at the same time. And hey, how are you doing, Art? And he goes, hey, you're like an evangelical preacher, right? I said, uh, uh, yeah, I am. It's like that big church with a fountain on the corner. You know, it's Florida. And I, yeah, that's the church I pastored. He goes, were you ever planning to share the gospel with me? And I said, yeah. <laughs> and he'd been watching heretical televangelists, wondering what was going to happen when he died. And I, I appreciated the prompt. And I said, well, how about now? I witnessed him, you know. Uh, so I think that we, we need to look upon them in light of eternity, in light of the fall, in light of, uh, in light of the hope that we have that there are, there are elect persons out there. And we have the privilege of discovering who they are. They have eternally belonged to God. God gave them to the Son in eternity past. They are 
collectively the bride of Christ. And out there right now, they may be an abortion doctor, you know, something like that. Um, we get the privilege of discovering who they are by preaching the gospel. And, and that's, that's how that works. Uh, the, uh, Jesus said, I have many people in the city. In fact, I was in Boston, Massachusetts one time. We were doing a conference at Park Street Church. It was me, Jim Boyce, and R.C. Sproul. So I was uh, the undercard, which I was saying. And, um, and I was walking along uh, the park and, you know, the, the uh, what's the big park in downtown? Look, Boston Common. And the street by it, and there's this big Baptist temple. And this Korean guy jumps out of the crowd and goes, you're Richard Phillips. I, I'm like, yeah, I am. He goes, come in and preach. Never happened before. So I'm like, and I didn't, and actually I, was, I was thinking about, wow, this is like, there's no churches here. And, and you know, Boston seems like a very dark place. Guy jumps out, hey, Richard Phillips, come in and preach. And so literally he walks me in the doors of this Baptist temple. I don't remember the name correctly, but it was massive inside. And we go through the stage, and there's 2,000 Koreans. Preach. And I preached Acts 19. God said, I have many people in the city. And I did the Spurgeon spontaneous prayer. You read the verse, and then you talk about every word in it. <laughs> and. And is a great book, word of the Bible. Not or, but and. The. The Bible is. Done. It wasn't that bad. But that's what, Spurgeon's so eloquent. He does it, that's what he does sometimes, so. Yeah, so that's our view of the world. And God is going to be glorified in either the judgment or the redemption of every person. So we look upon it knowing that God is sovereign. I think right now it's very helpful to remember God's sovereign to keep us from depression. This is going down the tubes. But of course it's going down the tubes. But let it not be that we're not praying. Let it my deal with my congregation is surely every one of you can have at least one person and you're praying for that person, for them to be converted, and for God to give you an opportunity to witness to them. Because evangelism starts with prayer. And feel free to exceed that challenge. But it's not asking too much that each one of you would have one person that you're praying for. And that's our attitude towards the, the world. What we don't say is it towards the unelect, because we don't know who's elect and who's not. It's the world, and there are people out there. I mean, I was a pretty unlikely convert, to be honest with you. I didn't quite realize it. I knew it was a big deal. Tenth was a big church. But there was a big, my conversion was a big deal. And I didn't realize until later as a pastor that, you know, graduate students don't just, often, Ivy League graduate students don't just walk off the street into your church and get converted every Sunday. It doesn't happen every Sunday. But it does happen. Well, last, last question here, and this is, this is more practical-minded. So, as a church, what are the first things that we should do in response to the doctrine of God's sovereignty? Well, I think it's largely my message last night was that. Uh, we need to worship him, and we need to worship him according to his word. In Calvin's great treatise, The Necessity of Reforming the Church, is fascinating. He gave the reasons, this is pretty early in Calvin's career, he gives the reasons why they were just, you know, why they were causing such tumult in the world by breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church. The necessity of reforming the church. And let me explain why we're causing all these problems. 
And we would think that the first thing he would go to is Sola Scriptura. But he didn't. He, got, he did include it. We would think the first thing he would go to is justification through faith alone. He does. That's the second thing he gets to. First thing he gets to is that God is not being worshipped rightly. God is not being worshipped rightly. And it's our duty as Christians to insist that the church worship God according to his word. Uh, and he actually makes the argument, we, do th- we worship the biblical way as a way especially of glorifying his sovereign by treating him as the one who's sovereign. He gets to be in charge. And so we worship according to God's word as a way of glorifying his sovereignty. Uh, we serve him with all our hearts. And because this world, is, it's, it belongs to God, it's all according to his decree, his agenda is what's really going on. And all the stuff in the news, all the stuff that fills our lives and so much of our aspirations and thoughts are merely the scaffolding behind which this great temple is being built. And right now we don't see the temple. We don't see the, 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 the building of God in history. We see the scaffolding. We think it's important. But when Jesus comes back, the scaffolding is all going to be torn down, and you're going to see the church. And so we need to have a, an eternal perspective on our present lives, and we need to have a God-centered perspective on what we're doing. And it doesn't mean you can't have a sports team, although it would be evil for that team to be Ohio State. But uh, <laughs> I went to Michigan. But uh, we can joke, but we should lead serious lives. Uh, it's an oxymoron for a, a, a purposeless Christian. Christians say, I don't have any sense of purpose. Dude, look up. I mean, it is impossible for a Christian not to have a great purpose in his or her life because there are good works that God has appointed for you to do. There's, there are witnesses for you to give. There is a, a facet of God's glory that your life, as you consecrate that life to the Lord, was designed to give. And I think there's a burning need in the churches of America, that includes the Reformed churches, for the people of God to radically consecrate our lives to Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean we don't have fun. doesn't mean we ever go on vacation. doesn't mean, you know, we never buy a nice pair of shoes. Feel free to glorify God in your, on your vacation in your nice pair of shoes. He's good. He wants you to have a nice pair of shoes, if that's his will. Well, we radically consecrate our lives. As Paul says in Romans 12, we make our lives a living sacrifice, a thank offering to him. I, I, I'm not persuaded that we're doing that in mass, to be honest with you. I think that we're devoted to the scaffolding. And we don't see the divine construction project, project behind it. And so, so, but so, you know, uh, if you're called to be an accountant and that's your vocation, be an excellent accountant. And be ambitious about your accounting practice and the people you're employing and the good works you do. That's fine. But that should not define who you are. And then we should be willing. The other thing is we're willing to suffer. Y'all, we're going to be persecuted. Is that a controversial statement? I've been preaching Jeremiah. And, I, and the reason I chose Jeremiah is because it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's almost uniquely you know, fashion message for a, a, a church under fire from the world with judgment looming. I mean, that's Jeremiah and Judah. 
I like to point out, if we're like that, don't be afraid. But you remember Daniel was in his youth group. I mean, essentially. So, you know, the next generation after us, they got to be heroes. We need to be raising Christian heroes. And we need to become Christian heroes. And we need to be, we need to start taking seriously what does it profit a man to gain in the whole world if he forfeits or loses his soul. Um, and so the sense of divine sovereignty is a doxological component. There's an there's a evangel, evangelistic component. But there's also just the pouring out of our whole lives and living for his pleasure. You know, 100 years from now, I'm going to avoid a controversy. 100 years from now, everybody in this room is going to be dead. Fair statement. Maybe less than that. What's going to, what's going to matter is not when we die, but how we live. And what's going to matter is that we were in Christ. And, and, and he is coming back, and we will live in the light of his glory forever, though we didn't deserve any of it, and we were disappointments and failures, but Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. But it makes sense to me that if we were aware of that, the profitable way to live now is in mind of that. I care about people's illnesses, about their loneliness, and I really care about them. Uh, I, and I want them to do well. But it's all dross compared to whether or not they are in Christ. And you go, well, I can't... I think what's going on in part in America today, particularly in the seeker-sensitive movement with all this crazy, embarrassing stuff they do in church, oh, it's going to be really exciting because the pastor's going to paraglide into the sanctuary. That would leave a large dent if I did it. You know, we're going to drive a monster truck. We're going to raffle a house. These are dear Christian people who don't believe in the sovereignty of God, and they think it relies on their efforts. And they've despaired of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit by the ordinary means of grace, the word, prayer, and sacraments. And so they're using carnal... Am I wrong? They're using... It's because they care for the world. But it's stupid. And it's embarrassing. And and it's all vain. Um... Let's be like Paul. I often think of 2 Corinthians 4, 1 to 6. We have renounced secret, underhanded ways. We don't tamper with the word of God. But by the, by, the, by, the, by the statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to the consciences of men. For God who made light shine out of darkness has, called, has given us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just preach the word, and he supernaturally saves people who you thought would be the last people. Of course, Paul himself was the example par excellence, but how many of us, and I think I'm helped in that respect, that I'm an adult convert. Because like I was there, I know what happened, I know my life. It's actually helped my assurance, because it's a pretty dramatic change. Um, But don't tell me that we can't just preach the word with prayer. I, I later learned that one of my cousins, who I was not really close to, but I knew, Who'd been, who was in a kind of a, uh, he was in a, a, a church that's so kooky that sometimes it's called a cult. I don't think it really is, but it's bad. But he's a Christian. He spent, he, I learned that he's, he prayed for me for 10 years. When I was a second lieutenant in the Army, he was a, a National Guard second lieutenant. And he came to the same post I was at, and he met me, and he saw what a sinner I was and how proud and arrogant I was and how drunk I was. And he committed himself to praying for my salvation for 10 years. So why was I saved? Because he prayed for me for 10 years. Why was I saved? 
because 10th Presbyterian Church preached the word. Why was I saved? Because my mother wanted me to be, you know, uh, a four-star rather than a two-star general. Why was I saved? Because a, a lady, while I was carrying boxes for her, made a lame attempt at witnessing that I shut down effectively, but she got at least the name of the church out. I was saved because God loved me with an everlasting love. And he chose me in Christ from the foundations of the world. That's my text tonight. And so it would just be crazy for me not to live for his glory. 